0: All of us believe in something. You are believing right now that that chair is going to hold you up. You believe that your 401k will have enough money in it when it's time to retire. Or that the car is going to turn on when it's time to put the key in the ignition, right? And all of us believe certain things. Whether or not those beliefs are good and right and true is determined by whether or not they actually work. Like if that chair falls, it's like I'm not sitting there ever again. Well, let me ask you, is your faith working right now? And does it work? Like, is your faith working and does it actually work? Like when you are in a trial, like we're going to talk about today, does your faith work like it's supposed to? Uh, when you're tempted, does your faith work like it's supposed to? When you want to like just rage on somebody, maybe your boss or a neighbor or your spouse, does your faith kick in at that moment like it's supposed to? So the series, the book of James, is all about strengthening faith that actually works. So we're going to talk about some great topics, and like we've said already today, we're going to talk about trials today. And Lee Blattner uh, has the teaching duties today. Lee is our pastor in resident. He's finishing his master's degree at Biola University. On the tail end of it, I think you graduate this May, I believe, so we joked around that we're not going to get you a birthday cake. We'll just get you more books to read. Okay, is that okay? No, he's like, no, I don't want that. Give me a birthday cake. Give me a cake of some kind. And Lee has been preparing all week. He's been studying, but most importantly, he's been praying. He's been praying for you and that God's word would speak and encourage you um, in this passage. So if you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 1, and let's give a warm, warm welcome to Lee. Come on up, Lee. Thanks, dude.
1: Hey, thanks. I am excited to be here. James is a really great book, and this is going to be a great study. You know, uh, this, is, this is my service. This is the service I go to. We're the group of people that think that 9 a.m. is too early to go somewhere, and, and you know, I, I feel that, and, you know, there's something that's on my heart that I didn't say during the first service, but it's just on my heart right now. I read earlier this week that a third of Americans feel deep loneliness, a third, And and more than half said that nobody in their life really knows them well and they long for deeper relationships. And I'm here to say, if that's, there's no reason why that should be anybody at this church. No reason at all. If you're not a member of a discipleship group, that's a great way to get connected. And we meet on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And it's not like it's all tears and hugs, it's just that, you know, when you have people that are studying God and they grow closer to Him, they grow closer to each other as they do that, and so just, you know, just some food for thought. Um, Now today, I'm gonna share a story with you, a story about Ernest Shackleton. Now, Ernest Shackleton, he was a thrill seeker and an explorer, and he liked to go places that nobody had really gone to before. In fact, he went within 100 miles of the South Pole. I mean, no one had ever gone that close to it before. So it made sense that when he set out to do the first trans-Antarctic expedition, there were a lot of guys that wanted to join his crew, Now, if you're like me, you're kind of thinking about it, and you say, man, I do not get the attraction. Why would you want to go to Antarctica, not even on a cruise ship? Well, you know, this was undiscovered country for them, and so it was thrilling. It was an adventure. So they gathered their funds. They christened their ship, The Endurance. What a great name, The Endurance. That name would really pay off later on for them. And then five days before they set sail, World War I breaks out. You think that's going to ruin everything. But then Shackleton says, no, we're going. So they sail south. And when I say south, I mean really south, south of South America, south of Argentina and Chile. And when they start seeing ice floating in the water, they know that's a good sign. That means we're getting closer to where we want to be. Then the ice starts to gather a little more. And then it starts to smush together. And then it starts surrounding the boat. And before you know it, the boat can't move at all. It's completely encased in ice. And after two months of being stuck there, Shackleton says, we're just gonna have to wait for the spring. We're gonna have to wait for this to melt before we can go anywhere. But then spring came and spring left, and it was all the way until September when finally it began to melt. But when it did, it ruptured the hull of their boat, and it started taking on water. So Shackleton orders the entire crew of 27, get off the boat, set up camp on one of those blocks of ice, And bring everything that you possibly can, and that's what they do. Now, right about then, it'd be great to get on your satellite phone and call back to home and say, Mom, come pick me up. But, you know, there's no cell phones back then. There's no satellites. And even if there were, I mean, they're embroiled in the middle of World War I. What are they going to do? They can't do anything. So what's Shackleton's plan? Well, his, his plan is that that chunk of ice will float 250 miles towards the closest island. That's just nearly impossible. I mean, if you're one of the crew members, you've got to be losing faith in that guy by now. I mean, your trust in him has to be shaken. And that's what we do, right? When times get rough, you and I, we, we kind of tend to blame. And the easiest person to blame is to blame up. Blame the person that's in charge, and that's Shackleton, right? I mean, yeah, I went on this voyage. I knew the risks. I knew that maybe it could get into danger. And yeah, the ice wasn't really Shackleton's fault. But... It isn't my fault, so it's gotta be your fault, right? But you know, strangely enough, they didn't. They didn't ever lose faith in Shackleton. And that that chunk of ice floated within 60 miles of an island before it broke apart and disintegrated. And Shackleton ordered everybody, get in the lifeboats. And so they got in the lifeboats and they quickly made their way to the closest island 60 miles away, which was Elephant Island. And you're thinking now, finally, they've been rescued. Elephant Island is a rock, a frozen rock in the middle of the ocean, and it is inhospitable, and it's uninhabited. There is nothing there for them. In fact, when their supplies run out, that's the end of them. They're dead. So Shackleton takes five from that crew of 27, and they set up on a lifeboat to head 720 miles away to a whaling village that's on another island. 720 miles in a lifeboat. So what happens to them? Well, a hurricane hits them. A hurricane that sinks ships at the time. But somehow, somehow their lifeboat survives and they make it to the whaling village. And then Shackleton mounts a rescue expedition and every member of his crew was rescued. You know, it it would have been easy. It would have been easy for his crew to turn their back on Shackleton. You know, he, he got us into this mess. He's the one that's in charge. But, you know, in the end, their trust was really well placed because he would move heaven and earth to make sure that they were safe. He even put himself in harm's way. Now, I, I, I suspect that on a sheet of ice in the middle of the Antarctic that there aren't any atheists, right? But if you have a really good relationship with God, there might be a time when you looked up and you said, God... Why? Why did you put me here on this, on this chunk of ice? Why, why didn't you just take me if you're gonna take me? Why do I have to be here and suffer? You might not see the good that was going to happen down the road. You know, people long ago, particularly the Jewish culture, they thought that when you were, whether you were blessed or whether you were cursed, it had a lot to do with your relationship with God. Now, you know that's not true, right? I mean, there are tons of people uh, that, that have been, uh, that are faithful, and yet they were suffering. You just read and hear it. In this book, there's tons of stories of people that were faithful to God, but yet they suffered. Just look at Jacob's son, Joseph. Now, he was betrayed by his brothers. They threw him in a cistern, and then they sold him into slavery. I mean, that was just awful. And then later he ends up in prison. A lot of people. A lot of people would say, "God, you've turned your back on me, and now I'm turning my back on you." But Joseph was faithful. Yeah, what, he even said to his brothers later on, "What you meant for evil, what you meant to harm me, God used for good." And that just that just about seems impossible. But that's what happens. You know, there are plenty of people in here that were—and people throughout history that were faithful and suffered. Now, sometimes. Life gives you that gut punch. You know, the kind of thing that just takes your breath away and you're just reeling from it. It's in those moments that you ask, how do you respond to difficult times that dare you to turn away from God? How do you respond to difficult times that dare you to turn away from God? In other words, how do you muster the faith, to trust that God has really got this? We're going to find our answers today in James. Now, James is a small book It's only about five pages, and it's near the end of your Bible. So if you hit Revelations, you've gone too far. It's right after Hebrews. Now, James uh, was the half-brother of Jesus. Paul talks about him in 1 Corinthians. He talks about him in Galatians. And Luke talks about him in Acts. And even a first-century historian named Josephus talked about him. Now, he was Jewish. He wasn't Christian. He talked about him. He called him James, the brother of Jesus Christ. So this he was an important guy in the early church. James calls it like it is. There isn't a lot of flowery language or metaphors that you have to dig through. You won't have difficulty understanding what James is trying to communicate to you. It was written about 10 years after Jesus's death. So this was probably the first New Testament book that was written and it's an epistle. And you know what an epistle is. An epistle is a letter and it's written to somebody. And if you really wanna understand what the, the author is trying to communicate, you have to understand Who was the audience? Who was he writing to? So how do you figure that out? Well, it's in that part of scripture that you and I like to skip, right? We like to skip the genealogies, but in this case, it's in the greeting. So let's kick it off in uh, James chapter one, verse one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Okay, so what do we know about the people he's writing to? Well, he calls them the 12 tribes. So we know that they're, they're Jewish Christians. In fact, later on, he says that they, they met in synagogues. Well, that's only Jewish Christians did that. That wasn't what Gentile Christians would do. What do we know about their circumstances? Well, we know that they're scattered among the nations. Maybe your translation uses the word diaspora. Now, what you should know is that the Jewish people were conquered by the Babylonians and the Assyrians and then now Rome over hundreds of years. And that conquest of those nations caused them to scatter everywhere. But these are Jewish Christians, and they're scattered for a completely different reason. You see, in Acts, we read about this Jewish Christian named Stephen, and he was having a debate with the men in a synagogue. And you know he was actually won the debate. He did a great job, and in some respects, he won the battle but lost the war because those guys had him arrested, and they brutally stoned him to death. Can you imagine how scary it was if you happened to see that? Someone you knew, your friend, get stoned to death? In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we read, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So they were scattered. Diaspora. Imagine seeing something really ugly happen to someone that you know, someone that you care about, because they believe the very same things that you believe. Now, in that moment, you would know, I'm not safe here. I need to leave. Not next week, not tomorrow. I need to leave right now. Not only that, but you need to leave. You don't have time to sell anything. You're gonna have to leave your home behind. You're gonna have to leave your entire godly inheritance behind. You have no credit cards. You have no bank accounts. There's no 401k to dip into. You flee to a place where there's no social safety net, where the strong thrive off the backs of the weak. You're a stranger in a strange land. You're poor, and you're just incredibly vulnerable. These are the people that James is writing about. And, And right about now, they're probably thinking to themselves, if God is really with us, then why isn't he saving us from this? Why isn't he rescuing us from this horrible situation? They desperately needed to understand how to respond to God in the impossible situation that they were in. Now let's pick up in verse two. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Consider it joy when you encounter trials. Trials. What exactly is a trial? You know, it could be, um, is it if I'm driving to church and I get a flat tire? That's not a trial. That's a bummer, right? Life is filled with bummers. You know, we, bad things happen. It doesn't mean that it's, uh, it's a trial. If you don't get the right parking spot, that's, that's not a trial. It's just kind of a bummer. I mean, think about it. When you go to a trial, a judge is going to find something. Well, what is he going to find? You're either innocent or you're guilty. That isn't just something bad that's happening. It's a test. And what we're talking about here, James is talking about a circumstance that threatens to shake your faith. This is different from like everyday temptations. You can think of those as being internal and and we're going to talk about those next week. Again, what we're talking about here in in a trial is something external, something that shakes our faith. And then he says consider it pure joy consider that's a word of reason that's when we carefully decide we think about all of the options and we choose the best option like this morning so I came from Shino Hills all the way here to church and I had to carefully decide I had to consider what's the best route now you might think the 91 because it seems like the obvious route no the 91 is never the best route, you know. 91's, I mean, yeah, and, and you might think, well, why did God put the 91 there, you know? God didn't put it there. If he did, there wouldn't be a tollway. So, now the, the, the Greek word consider is imperative. And we don't have to get into Greek grammar. You know what the word imperative means. It means you must do this. This is essential. Now, putting it all together, you get, uh, when you and I encounter adversity, we need to radically change our perspective. Because God can use tragic circumstances for good. In other words, God may not have caused it, but if you respond the right way, he can use it. It's like those times when you, when you feel like you're trying to hold back a tidal wave with your bare hands, and you just feel overwhelmed and inadequate. Maybe you have a job loss, and it feels like the world is just spinning out of control. Maybe when you get home from work, your tank is just empty. There's nothing left. And you're struggling to be the daddy or the mommy that God called you to be. Now that's a trial that you cannot neglect. You need to lean into that. Maybe your kid's a little bit older and you see them making terrible choices and your heart just aches for for them, but You know, something inside you feels a little hypocritical because you know deep inside that when you were their age, you made some of those exact same choices. Well, I'm here to tell you, you're not a hypocrite. I mean, it's because you went down that road that you know where it leads. You know, it can feel like, it can feel like we're in a raft with no oars in the middle of the ocean, with no land in sight, and we're just sitting there. And for some of us, that that raft is fear. For some of us, the raft is in the middle of an ocean of grief. When you're on that raft, I know what you're praying. Because I'm praying the same thing too. You're saying, God, get me off this raft. Rescue me from this terrible place. Lord, heal my marriage. Father, take this addiction from me. We ask that God will save us, right? And maybe he will. And how glorious is that? Because when God gives us those miracles. But you know, maybe, maybe we need to change our prayer a little bit. Maybe we need to be praying, God, what do you have for me on this raft in the middle of this ocean? See, when you respond like that, there's a reason for joy. Because that prayer says, God, I trust that somehow you're going to use this for good. I may not see it now. I may not see it now, but I'm I'm on board, thy will be done, not mine. Now understand, there there is no joy in suffering. That's not what I'm trying to say. The joy lies in what is to come. The joy lies in knowing that God is on that raft with you. You know, if I went around this room and I asked every single person, think about the circumstance that led to the most growth in your life. I can guarantee you the vast majority would be stories of pain of terrible circumstances. And I know that because over many years, I've asked this to many groups of people, young adults, older adults, and it's always the same. Maybe you've heard the expression that if if you want to paint a masterpiece, you have to use dark colors. Well, you know, there's a lot of truth to that because dark times, they can grow us if we respond the right way. Now if we don't, then we squander that opportunity to grow. Now for a few of us, for a few of us, the greatest growth in our life came from something beautiful. Maybe the birth of a child, wow, what a blessing that is. But for most of us, like Lincoln, we're driven to our knees because we had nowhere else to go. And God used those moments and he'll do it again. You know, over time, we work faith like a muscle. It's, it's no fun to work out, right? You know, we, we do it because we like the results. I mean, no one wants to do the blurpees. You'd rather go to church than do blurpees. But, but we, we work, we, we want to uh, enhance our faith because we care about the result. He says that the testing of your faith produces Perseverance. Now maybe, maybe your Bible uses the word endurance. Well, you know what the difference is between endurance and patience? Well, patience is helping your middle school kid with mathematics. That requires patience, right? Now endurance is different. Endurance requires suffering. Endurance is going with your your teenage daughter to a Justin Bieber concert. (laughs) Suffering comes from trials. Suffering that comes from trials serves a purpose. Think about that. Suffering that comes from trials serves a purpose. So why is perseverance really necessary? Well, the job of perseverance is to develop us as Christians. The more we trust God through our painful circumstances, the more we turn to him rather than we turn away. And the more we turn to him, the more we become the man or the woman that he made us to be, that he designed us to be perseverance through challenging times can change you from who you are to who you could be now have you have you ever thought about that maybe the trial that you're in right now God is using it to introduce you to who you could be who he wants you to be who he's calling you to be you know you may not be able to change your circumstance you may not be able to change that person that you're butting heads with but you can change you God can change you And God may be using this trial to change you. Lee, you don't know what I've been through. You may not be able to see my scars, but they are good for nothing but pain. You know, you're right, I don't know your circumstance. In a room this size, I bet lots of awful things have happened. And you know what? You may not always be able to see the good that came out of painful situations. But you can always trust that God will. You can always trust that God will. Years ago, my wife and I, we had friends who lost their child to miscarriage. And I'll tell you, pain cannot describe that kind of loss. I mean, there is an emptiness, a void that used to be filled with the hopes and dreams that you had for your new kid. I'm sure at that time, they saw no good that could ever come out of that pain. It was just a sore spot. And then years later, an unmarried teenage girl who was pregnant came into our circle of friends. Now her dad, he was highly skeptical of us Christians. He was expecting nothing but judgment from us, right? All of the stereotypes. But his daughter got nothing but love from us. And then a little while later, we got word that this young lady was in the hospital and that she just lost her baby There was only one person in our group that could speak to her because it was the person that had gone through that, that experienced that kind of pain. God used her to walk with that girl through the most traumatic event of her young life. Now, her dad, the skeptic, he was so moved by what he saw. He was just so jarred from his preconceptions that everything changed for him. It finally became real and he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. God used their pain to do something unimaginable in the future. They couldn't possibly see it, but God could, and that's the way it is. Consider a joy when you, remember, when you encounter troubles that threaten to challenge your faith because you can't fathom how God can take something broken and turn it into something breathtaking. Now, he finishes verse 4 by saying, then you will be mature and complete, lacking nothing. See, that's our goal. Our goal is to be mature and complete, lacking nothing. But there's an ingredient that you might be missing. And this ingredient can can help you when you're on that raft in the middle of nowhere. Let's pick up in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God When it feels like it's a storm that you can't weather, God's wisdom will help you through it. Okay, so at this point, maybe it's great. Exactly what is wisdom? And how is it different from knowledge? I mean, can I ask God for knowledge of advanced calculus for my test next week? I mean, you can ask him, right? But that's not wisdom, that's knowledge. And plenty of us know well-educated people who seem to be pretty smart, but they're not wise at all. They're kind of foolish. What we're talking about here is godly wisdom, and godly wisdom here is insight into God's purpose and ways. Think about that, insight into God's purpose and ways. Now, I've gotta be honest with you, it's probably not gonna be something that God's just gonna zap you with. That's usually not the way it is, at least in my experience. This has a lot to do with your prayer life. So, the way I've experienced godly wisdom is I bring my pain to God, then I ask God for wisdom, and now this is the most difficult part, then I shut up and listen. And it it isn't fast. It takes time. And it takes time to discern the difference between the voice in my head and God's voice giving me godly wisdom. You know, a great source of godly wisdom is this book. In fact, if you set up regular rhythms of reading the Bible, and if you set up regular rhythms of praying to God, you'll find that you'll be able to recognize God's wisdom when he tells it to you. You'll be able to discern that. But when you ask, he says, you must believe and not doubt. You know what's interesting? Verse five, he tells you, when you run into these tricky times and if you lack wisdom, just ask for it and I'll give it to you. He says that, or God will give it to you. He says that in verse five, but then he dedicates the whole rest of the passage, verses six through eight, to saying, but listen, when you do it, you gotta be all in. You can't kid around about this. You can't doubt that God's gonna do it. You gotta know that God's gonna do it, that he's going to respond. So, I mean, when I first read this, my question was, why is that so important? Let me put it you this way. Let's say you ask a girl on a date, and before she can answer, you turn to another girl and you ask her on a date just in case she says no. Right? <laughs> now, does that matter? Yeah, it totally matters. You know, I I bet you're not going to get that date, right? (laughs) I bet you're not. You can see that it absolutely matters. See, faith is trusting God will do what he promised to do. He may not give you the answer that you want. He may not give it to you as quickly as you want. And part of his purpose might mean that you have to spend a lot of time on that raft. Trusting that God will use it for good, even if you can't see it right now even if you never see it. But Lee, my, my, my situation is different. Nothing that I know will fix the mess that I'm currently in. Listen, I mean, sometimes wisdom can, can get you out of a jam. Sometimes wisdom, godly wisdom, can get you out of trouble. But oftentimes, godly wisdom gets you through the trouble. I mean, when the storm has already hit and you're reeling in the aftermath it's not that godly wisdom won't fix what's already been irreparably damaged but it can help you through it godly wisdom whispers to you it says you can trust him god is faithful and at the end of your days when you're sitting next to him and you look back on this it's all going to make sense even if it doesn't right now when you're stuck on that raft in the middle of the ocean and the storm begins to rage, godly wisdom will help you through it. You know, about 20 years ago, I noticed that my mom started to lose, lose words. And she knew what she wanted to say, but she said right when it came time to say it, she just lost them. And that was the beginning, the first signs of her long battle with dementia. Many of you probably have had family that went through dementia or Alzheimer's. Now, as far as I could tell, he never, she never forgot any of us. But slowly, over the next 10 years, she, she lost the ability to communicate. Dementia is unbelievably cruel. Yeah, it takes the people we love just bit by bit, exposes those ugly parts that we would never want seen. But my mom, she was beautiful through and through. I wish I could be like that. You can bet, you can bet I prayed for God to get me off that raft. You can imagine how I pleaded with him. She's too young. The world is far better with her. I'm not ready for this, God. But then in time, my prayers changed. I prayed, God, I can see utterly no good that can come from this. Utterly no good. Show me because I want to believe that you're good. Now, maybe not in so many words, but I was praying God for his wisdom, for for insight into his purpose, and I didn't hear his voice. No, he just opened my eyes. He revealed to me what was happening around me. It was as if we were walking together, and he pointed out the beautiful things that I couldn't see in all of my grief. You know, Lee, the world is broken. Everyone dies. Yeah, yeah, God, I know. You know, your wife, did you see how she picked up and she did those ugly bits that nobody wants to do? She loves with her actions. And you might never have seen that. Yeah, Lord, I saw that too. Do you see your nephew wrestling with me right now? couple months ago he wouldn't even be bothered to listen to me yeah god I can't miss that do you see the masterpiece I'm finishing in your sister yeah when I saw what God was doing it didn't make losing my mom less painful it just helped me endure it it strengthened my faith it helped me trust God more now you know, in the 10 years that followed, I lost far too many people I loved. But I'll tell you what, I was able to endure it because of that trial. Because that trial that built my faith, and it made me stronger, and it made me trust God. How do you respond to difficult times that dare you to turn away from God when you don't turn away? You face God. You remind yourself that God can use this impossible circumstance for something better than you can can ever imagine. You ask God for wisdom. Now, don't miss this. Pain can serve a purpose when you walk through it with God. When you invite God to be on that raft with you in the middle of nowhere, the ocean doesn't seem so big, so formidable. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe right now there's that relationship that just feels hopelessly damaged. Maybe you feel feel like you're losing control of your life and you just fear what might happen next. Maybe right now you're turning back to God because sometime in the past you turned away from him and something inexplicably brought you here today, well, I'm here to tell you, the reason why you're here is because God wants you back. Maybe you lost someone precious to you, and that word joy, it just revolts you. It's time. It's time for you to invite God onto your raft, to sit with him in your hopelessness, in your fear, in your grief, and ask him for the wisdom you need to persevere. Be courageous enough to trust that the God who made everything, who made everything out of nothing will use this moment for good. God may not have caused this, but if you respond the right way, he will use it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful that you are the God that will meet us on the raft where we're at in the middle of nowhere. We're so grateful that you'll give us wisdom. You'll give us insight into your purpose. And Lord, we just ask for everyone that is here, everyone that's in a trial today, that they would invite you into that place. Lord, for everyone that's not in a trial, that once in the future, I pray that you would remind them of this message, that they would consider it an opportunity for joy. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being the great God that you are. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Listen, if you are going through a trial right now, there's a connection card. Fill it out with the trial that you're going through and drop it off in the basket over there by the seven-minute hangout. We would love to just pray for you and walk through this with you. Thanks.
0: This morning I wrote down some notes. Trials make us who we could become. Wisdom gets you through the trial. And pain can serve a purpose when you walk through it with God. Lee, thank you for sharing God's word today. And in James 1, again, it says, consider it pure joy. And as Lee said, that's that's a cognitive word, consider. It has to do with our mental health when we go through trials. So when you're in a trial, consider that God's in it with you. We consider that God is on that raft with you, walking through it with you. And then we are to ask God for help, for wisdom. Consider and to ask. And the picture that I have in this series is you're, you're in a trial right now, and you're holding, or it's holding on to you. That's what it feels like sometimes, right? A end of a rope of a bad circumstance, and you like to get out of it. But I want you to hold on to God. And you're in the tension. That's what trial looks like, right? That's what faith looks like. And so, church, I want you to consider that God is in it with you. And then to ask him, God, give me your help. Be in this with me. And that's all we're trying to do in this series, is as you're going through something, a faith that works, is a faith that says, I know I'm going through this, but I'm going to hold on to God in the midst of it. And so that's why we really want you to take that card and to not walk out, you know, you didn't name what it is, and say, God, like, here's where I need you. Here's where I'm going to consider you being involved in. And we're just going to sing one little chorus, because this is the the mantra of of the series, really, as we worship God in this. And I want you to think of a situation, a trial you're going through, and then sing this chorus with us as we conclude today.